We got him. We are back. Kevin. We got him. We are back. A guest and his son we've been after for quite some time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dogs of War podcast, the more browse podcast on the planet. You got Kevin and Raleigh. And ladies and gentlemen, our guests today need no introduction, but they're still going to get one. Hailing from Excelsior Springs, Missouri, where he's a member of the Missouri Sports Hall of Fame since 2016, where in 2004, he set up a foundation in his name, Raleigh to benefit the community and local schools in Excelsior Springs, raising over $2 million since 04. Former head coach of the Buffalo Bills, no big deal. A man who coached Sean Payton wanted as his defensive coordinator so badly that he took a $250,000 pay cut himself to get him into New Orleans. A man who then won a Super Bowl with New Orleans, something we don't know anything about in Cleveland yet. A man who was DC for your Cleveland Browns before taking over as interim head coach and taking the Browns to a very rare five and three record the rest of the way the current dc of the xfl's dc defenders a resume that's so long i only have one page here so i apologize ladies and gentlemen coach greg williams coach how we doing welcome to the show hey everything's going great thank you for inviting us on i love to love to talk ball and i love to talk browns well it's an honor and privilege to have you and don't worry uh blake we we got you here (laughs) a man's son blake is all super bowl champ as an assistant coach in new orleans Defensive coordinator and linebacker coach of the Rams in 2012. Linebacker coach interim DC for the Browns from 2017 to 2019. Defensive assistant from the Jets from 2019 to 2021. Went to a small college out east called Princeton. No big deal. (laughs) Also, Coach Williams. Blake, thank you for joining us as well, sir. Thank you very much for having us. We're excited. Love love the pod. Hey, one more thing you can put on is that we were the very first father-son to ever win a Super Bowl on the same coaching staff. Hey, had that record down to Saints, and then now Bill and his son Steve Belichick are ahead two to one. It's really pissing me off. And it was did was Reed's son on the staff still, or was he gone? He was on the staff for one of them. Okay, all right. So Kevin, Obviously, do the intro again, and be sure to. Oh yeah, we'll redo part. the intro. Yeah, and we'll, we'll edit that part in. Yeah, no, that's all right. No big deal about that. <laughs> so we've wanted you uh, on for a very long time, Coach and Coach. Um, and I could sit here all day with the questions and things I've wanted to talk about. Um, I guess my, uh, my first one, uh, a softball. This is a historic Browns defense. You are also known as turning around defenses from defense that have been lower in the league to then, you know, top 10 in the league. You've done it at several teams, several organizations. Um, can you dumb down for the non-football-minded folks? What is the big thing that Schwartz has come in and done this year. It's so many of the same players, obviously a lot more in the D-line, but from a simple, non-football-minded folks like Raleigh and I, what has been the biggest change here? Well, the biggest thing is, first off, I'm so proud of Jim because Jim was with me back in the days with the Tennessee Titans and everything and moved him up through the staff and convinced uh, Jeff Fisher. I convinced Jeff Fisher to move him up to coordinator when I had to get stupid and go up to Buffalo to be the uh, head coach at the Bills. And I'm very, very, very proud of Jim. Now, the number one thing that we've done together, and he learned from Belichick and me and a lot of other places he's been, is that what we do schematically has to do with the ability of the players, not the ability of the coach or not to the mind of the coach. And what I see so much going on today in college and in the NFL is, is that coaches, you know, want to take all the credit and everything and only coach what they know. And players very, very quickly figure out that uh, they really don't understand how it is to win at the highest level in the world. And Jim has done a very good job on he's made modifications in his coaching style, his coaching schemes to fit the players that he has right here better than anybody else. And uh, I'm very, very proud of Jim in that way. 
we're proud of him too. Yeah. Um, it's, to kind of that end coach, uh, you said something there. I remember I, I'm the, the loser that watches all the press conferences like all week long. Um, I remember your introductory press conference in 2017. What stuck out to me the most, I still remember it vividly, is when you said these players are going to come in, their feet are going to be on the floor in my meeting room. There's no phones. There's no bullshit. There's no nothing. That was such a breath of fresh air because discipline and culture was not really something we've ever had in Cleveland up until the last you know few years or so. How do you battle being a uh, you know a strict, no nonsense coach with I guess what some people would say is the diva athlete of today, right? Some of these guys that come in, uh, you know, they're making ten, twenty, thirty million dollars a year. Is it as you know, as the media and other people think about it, you know, these people being divas in the locker room, is it really hard to battle with people like that on a day-to-day basis? Is there so many politics behind the scenes that we just don't see? The big thing is, as I say what I mean, I mean what I say, and that players at any walk of life, any level of life, they can figure out, you know, your own children can figure out which one to run to. You're going to run to mom and have her say it 15 times. You're going to run to dad and he's going to say it once. And then it's adios, you know, the discipline starts and it's choices, decisions, and consequences. The number one thing that I do when I walk into any brand new organization, I've had the opportunity of nine NFL organizations to help turn around, is that I teach them how to sit in a chair. I teach them how to focus. I teach them how to listen. I teach them how to have ownership, empower them to also have a say, but not until you understand the discipline of what it takes to be the best that you have to be each and every day at the top of the world in our profession. Then the other thing that we do that nobody else sees is that you have no idea how funny and how crazy and how much fun we have behind the scenes. And no matter if I'm pissed and I'm, I've been ripping somebody the whole meeting and the whole whatever group is in there, every single day we end every single meeting that I have with players with a joke of the day. And we, I don't believe in hazing. I don't believe in, you know, with, with rookies and everything, but we have a roster on who is up and that rookie has to come to the front of the room and he has to tell a joke. And if he doesn't tell it very good, then he gets roasted, okay, and has to go the next day and he has to go the next day. So finally, if they get roasted two days in a row, I tell them, look, go get on social media, find you a joke. We know you can't present shit, okay? So here's the deal. <laughs> When you get to the closing part of it, whoever the joke's about, make it be about me and I'll snap and get all over you and let's see what happens. So they get up there, stutter, stammer, do everything at the very end. It's the joke is on me and I rip him, start getting on him and all the players jump up and hug him and high five him because he had enough nuts to get on me in front of everybody. So the camaraderie and the teamwork starts in the classroom. It starts in the locker room before you ever hit the grass and get out on the field. And I've done that my whole life. And, and, and again, I've coached over 2,500 NFL athletes and over a thousand of them every year call me or text me on Father's Day. So I must not be as big an ass, whatever you want to call that as everybody says I am because we have a good time, okay, in everything we do. That was such a matter-of-fact description of a – telling a joke and a structure. I haven't had a thousand unique people in my life text me in like the, the, the total time. Coach, uh, we're big on segues here. That's a great segue into a question I wanted to ask you. Um, I'm not going to ask who's the best player you've ever coached. I, I, it's too easy. Before you ask that, who was the naturally funniest player you've ever coached? Oh, it's not even close. It's not even close. The funniest and Blake's not a quarterback. Not a quarterback. Because he hurt him. There's only one player that I've coached out of that 2,500 I would never, ever try to talk shit to or try to argue with or have a comedy with, and it's Fred Smoot, who I had as a defensive back at the Washington Redskins, now the Commanders, and every single day in stretch, somebody would pop off to him, you know, on the whole teams out there on the field and everything, and he would denut every single person Okay, that ever tried to argue with him. Dude. He's by far the funniest, Blake. Tell him. He's, he's just, yeah, he's exact, exactly right. And he always just had him like right there on the on the tip of his tongue. And it's like the presentation, it's whatever. He'd just be jacking around and stretch, you know, 
he, you know, finally he'd say, you know, be walking around doing his, you know, surly arms cross thing and be like, hey, are you going to stretch? You know, you're going you're to be all this chirping and you're going to go out there and pull a hamstring, you know, and like before he could even get, you know, that out of his mouth. He's like, turn around and say, hey, you ever seen a cheetah stretch before he goes and chases down prey in the Serengeti or whatever? <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I fucking thought. You know, they just He's go right naturally back. funny dude. Oh, dude. Unbelievable. And if you funny. ever get him on your show, get ready now. I'm telling you, he is absolutely amazing shit talker we've we've had a bunch of them like Cortland finnegan is a very funny dude yeah chris, chris long is a very funny chris dude. long like we've had uh. a couple of them that could be like stand-up comedians you know wow all right good enough right we write those down smooth. next time we play the commanders Let's coach you, you said yourself you coach over 2500 obviously you got to be a superstar talent to, to get in the nfl uh whether you're a coach or a player of all these players of all the superstars who was the most naturally gifted but the most easily coached superstar you've ever had. A guy that who has all the talent in the world, but he'll still take, he'll listen to everything you say and do everything you say. By far, it's not even close. And uh, Blake and I did a big time special show here this past Monday on the 16th anniversary of his passing. Uh, but with Sean Taylor that I had also at the Commanders, the safety. You know, I've got 20 guys that I've coached are in the NFL Hall of Fame, but the best athlete, the best player, uh, the, the most unbelievable player athletically and um, everything in, about him was Sean Taylor um, at the Washington Redskins at that time. And uh, he was the one when the people broke into his home and shot him and hit him in the leg and he mm -hmm. bled out in his femoral artery. We did a big special on him this past Monday and it's not even close on how good he is and above everybody else. Uh, we haven't plugged the, come get some show that Greg and Blake host on Bally's sports at nine Eastern on Tuesdays. Uh, but Sean Taylor, he also had, I think hands down the greatest pro bowl game play yeah. of all time. Yeah. And now it's solidified since the pro bowl is canceled. But when he lit that punter up, Brian Mormon. Yep. I another, another one. Of I, that's players, another one yeah. of my players. I signed him when I'm a head coach of the Buffalo bills out of NFL Europe. And I brought him on, okay, and worked him out at the end of my first year there and brought him on, and he wasn't supposed to be worth a doggone. And all of his dead, he played, what, 13, 14 years in the league. And it, it, it made my heart sing when Sean lit him up because <laughs> I could call him immediately and say, what are you doing, bud? This is, you know, you're not in full contact. You're a punter, okay? Why are you trying to do something at the Pro Bowl against guys that are a hell of a lot better than you? <laughs> I've always wondered, like, what's the Scottish hammer wait, stuff he, right he was there? Not, he was not on your team at the time he got hit, right? No, we were, no. The, we were at the Red, Redskins. We, we were, yeah, yeah we were back at the Redskins so commanders back then. I just got to imagine whoever, whatever team he was on, the head coach of that team, it's like, okay, we got the Pro Bowl and just seeing your punter get absolutely oh, yeah. by Sean Taylor. <laughs> like, dude, what are you doing? Well, there was right. there was another one in that game, yep. and he pulled yep. off of like, but he and he pulled off, but it was Reggie, you know, and Reggie Wayne still talks about it to this day. And Reggie Wayne and Sean were, you know, grew up together, played together, teammate, all the all that Miami talent, right? But he ran a he ran a little slant, and and Sean drove it, and he alligator armed it, and kind of like intentionally dropped it, and Sean avoided him at the last second, and didn't just blow it up, and like you it, you catch him on the mice, whatever. Sean was like, yeah, you're lucky. I love you, brother. Because <laughs> I mean, that's just how Sean was. You know, they interviewed Sean after that that game, and I'll never forget. Or forget I mean, his quote was, "Is like they talking about Brian Mormon." They're like, "Hey, did and did anybody say anything to you about that?" They're like, "Hey, this is the Pro Bowl, blah blah blah." And he's like, "No." And he's like, and "He's like, if they would have, I told him it's like if they'd want to get hit, and they shouldn't have, you shouldn't have ran the ball. Like, I only know this is one way to play. You know." When you pull up that show, when you guys pull up that show, you'll see the other big story we talked about that night was uh, when he was a rookie and Terrell Owens was still at Philly, and then went ahead and went on to Dallas after you know uh, a contract and all that kind of stuff is. But Sean's pedigree, Sean's attitude was whoever the best person he was playing against, he was going to impose his will on that person to let them know that they could never, ever, ever fit into his room, fit into his mindset. And uh, he went headhunting on Terrell Owens to the point where 
you know, we have philosophies and I have certain philosophies now where one of the philosophies I teach all players is live on the edge, play on the edge, never hurt this team. And, you know, Sean got flagged two or three times during that ball game on, you know, uh, late hits and all that kind of stuff because he was getting after Terrell to make sure Terrell understood it'd be better for him to go back and tell his coach never to throw the ball to him because uh, Sean was after him. That was that was a different time. A very, very different yeah, time. Actually, is that are there degrees of that mentality that you that still exist in the NFL that you witness? I mean, I know it's probably more well, everything's a flag now philosophy. for the most part. It still Everything. exists, it still exists, but the competition part of it is, and 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 I do this, the competition part of it is is teach the player how to stay within the rules of the hit mechanics and everything but don't stop being the best you can be. But you've got to use the technique exactly correctly on how you go about doing that. And again, we did that last year in the XFL. We were pretty intimidating in that respect, and we did everything pretty good there. You having some fun over there, Coach, in the XFL? It looks fun. It is a lot of fun, and you'll love this too, is that, you know, Dwayne The Rock Johnson is a good friend of mine. You know, he sat in my rooms a long time ago when uh, he wasn't good enough to play in the, in the uh, NFL. And I think it's fantastic. You know, we're, we're learning more about the merger now, you know, and uh, for you know, the XFL and the USFL is merged now. And we, all of us that are still involved in that, are learning more about the starting dates and all the things that we're going to be doing on that. But it's a great time because every single player that's in there, is working their tail off to prove themselves to have another chance in the NFL. I love it, and I love those guys. Uh, what are the chances you convert uh, The Rock into being a Browns fan? His life is so good. Why would he do that? <laughs> yeah, hey, he's going to be a fan of all types of football, and I'd love for him to get up here and uh, do the coin flip and you know intro, intro the teams and all that kind of stuff. You've seen him do a lot of different kind of places, but uh, – He's a great person now, and I don't think enough people give him enough credit for being how good a person he is and how he was raised by his family with nothing. As you remember, I don't know how much you know, when he got cut by the 49ers, didn't make it through training camp, then he got cut in the Canadian League, didn't make it through a season. He had $7 in his pocket, and he decides he's going to do this messed up WWE stuff and become the rock and then go on to TV, and if you go ahead and Google it right now, he's gone from $7 of his net worth to $1.2 billion of his net worth, so he's done pretty good. He it's, gave a guy in a parking lot his truck a couple years ago. Yeah. He said, you need out. this truck more than I do. Here you go. Well, that's easy to do when you're a billionaire. It was yeah. his own truck. He was just in the parking lot. He said, here, you need this more than I do. Take my truck. He threw his keys at it. I'm not trying to take away from The Rock, and that is a good move, but I'm just saying he's the king. that's different than me giving Kate's car. All right. Yeah, that's a divorce right there. uh, They don't talk about it anymore, but do you remember when The Rock was straight up like a WWE, WWF, whatever it was, his ability to do the single eyebrow raise? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, They've kind of moved away from that, but I'm I'm pretty sure that that ability, that talent had to have been a huge part of getting him to the next level. When he did the surprise entrance, it was a couple months ago into the event, he has been back there in years, I don't think. Um, it was incredible. I've never seen it. The first note of his song hit. And I, before you could even understand what song was playing that was his intro song, the entire the, the roof blew off the arena. I mean, he's one of the most loved superstars ever, right? He is, no doubt about it. The funny thing, I love this. There's, I always think about this. Like, So it, this is kind of... Right when his kind of the stardom in the WWE was kind of getting big, right? And so, like, in this, like, the late 90s. And so, the, the Oilers, the Houston Oilers moved to Tennessee, became the Tennessee Oilers. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people forget, like, the first two years, like, we didn't even have a stadium. We didn't have a home. We were playing in, in Memphis at the Liberty Bowl Stadium. And then the next year, playing at Vanderbilt Stadium. And then, so it was our third year in Tennessee, actually, um, when it was like 99, mm-hmm. that they changed the name to the Tennessee Titans because the stadium was built finally ready and like ready to full on, you know, become the, the Tennessee team or whatever. And, uh, and like we went to the Super Bowl that year, went 13 and three, went 13 and three the following year. But uh, they had this uh, thing, you know, uh, with, with The Rock 
and at the end of uh, all these games, and we didn't lose a single home game no. for the first two years in that stadium as well, too. So we got to do it at the end of every game. But it would come up, and like we'd be kneeling out the clock. And it was like I was just always thought it was the sickest thing. He'd come up there and he'd do his, you know, people's, you know, eyebrow, raised eyebrow, and whatever. And he's like, and he'd do his whole thing, like, "Who are you?" It'd be like the Ravens or something like that. It's like, "Who are you?" Like, what? He's like, "It doesn't matter what, you know, what your name is, you know." And then he was like, "You're out. You're done." And he would do a ten, and then the last ten seconds, as the clock was still ticking off in the real game on the Teletron, he would count count them down, like you know, counting them down. And he's like, ten, nine. Eight and the whole entire stands would be like counting them out. He's like, "You're out," you know. He's like, "See ya, take your jabroni." Yes. Oh, Obviously, yeah. that's the coolest thing of all time. But I'm a big believer that the Browns organization needs to do something to get people actually jacked up. Well, like- and the and the Browns fan in me during that right there is cool as the Rock doing that. The Browns fan in me, I'm trying to imagine going undefeated at home for two seasons. In well, yeah, that probably helped. Yeah. Well, granted, it's at the end of the game where they're kneeling, but it's like. Stop playing ACDC and do something that's yours. Uh, we'll get there. Co- coach and coach, I mean, again, you the the list of players you guys have been around and coached um, is obviously second to none. Um, can you talk to us, again, simple-minded football folks, about the talent that is Miles Garrett? Um, I, I'm trying to, to continue reminding myself, Raleigh, and you know, people that listen, that we can't take for granted this superstar, uh, this alien who happens to play football while we got him because uh, he's doing some things that are uh, pretty incredible, to say the least. I'm very, very proud of Miles, and I'm glad that you said about your ability to see how much ability he has, and it brings me back, and I've already told that story before about how I had to go into the draft room and be an ass about making sure we took him over somebody else that was a quarterback that they were going to draft and we could not bypass this particular player. And then on top of that, how hard Miles has continued to work and improve every second of every day. Now, I was on him hard when we first came in here. And the big thing is, is all the other players recognize the fact of I'm not going to babysit or pat pat with some other player that's just better than everybody else is all of a sudden when you say and you're demanding to that particular player, everybody else salutes and gets in line and says, hey, he means business. This is how we're all going to do things. Miles is now and it took some while. Miles is now he's got upgraded himself to the point where his example of how he plays and goes about things is so strong that now when he opens his mouth to help lead, people listen to you because your example that we're watching means more than the words coming out of your mouth. I am very proud. And look, he still scratched the surface. He stays healthy and continues to grow. You're going to see a guy that, you know, when he gets done playing, is going to be recognized as one of the top guys to ever play, and he has to stay healthy. Did uh, I'm assuming that Greg Williams doesn't peruse the internet for Twitter rumors and articles. I don't know why I'm making that assumption. Correct me if I'm wrong. Blake, did you see that Mary Kay Cabot wrote an article uh, saying that it is likely that Miles Garrett does, in fact, have structural damage in his shoulder despite – what was announced that there was no structural damage. Mm -hmm. Uh, Did you come across that? I I, I did. And then I also came across almost (laughs) right after that, the footage of him doing uh, push-ups on a medicine ball. Yeah. Without without any, without any sort of like, um, you know, favoring of the left or like fighting for balance or anything. Coach, how much of a, now we've had a, our, our resident podcast doctor is Raleigh's uncle, who's the former team surgeon and doctor of the Columbus Blue Jackets. Um, and so one thing that I'm always fascinated to hear about is when you have these injuries, I mean, whether it's like, you know, Deshaun, Miles, the four million quarterbacks we've gone through this year that are now hurt. Um, how much is it? Is it the doctor, the coach, the agent? How much do the agents in that player's team get involved in this and make it a pain in the ass? Or does that not really happen? 
the, the agent doesn't do anything with the team other than he'll be doing things behind the scenes with his player because we're not going to listen to the agent. Okay. And, and that's, that's between the player and him, but all of those people come into contact and come into having a say. And it's important that the player, it's important that the coach, all of us have and do the best thing that's right. And when there's a trust between the player and the coach, it becomes more valid in that way, you know, and I was going to be a doctor, but all I'm going to do is I'm a dumbass coach now that I turned down my med school scholarship. And I have done a lot of different types of things throughout the years and experience helps you make the quality decisions that's necessary not to run this player into a brick wall and hurt it even more. And the more and more you're around it, the better opinion and the better recommendations you can make to the player. But look, this is the kind of game that uh, if just because you got knocked down on the mat and you're a boxer, doesn't mean you have to get up. Doesn't mean that you have to continue to get up, but we all have to be smart with those type of things. And especially now with the way everybody is playing. And I think that staff there that's at Cleveland, and I think Kevin does a, a pretty good job with this too, is they will do the things during the middle of the week to make sure He's not that stage in his career. He doesn't need a lot of full speed reps at this point in time of the year. He's got to be able to cut it loose. And then will we load management in him during the game until he's fully back and ready to go? There's a lot of testing procedures that will go on with that. And uh, Miles will have a say also. But I think it's, it's a good group of people there that can help him out. Mm -hmm. um, should we get into the X's and O's? Well, I, one more question just about uh, something that, that gets talked about a lot, and I just want to ask the both of you um, if this is just a lazy argument for people that don't know football, which I think it is. You look at the coaches, the head coaches in the NFL, the young ones. Um, we'll just pick on Brandon Staley, for example, you know, fellow Dayton Flyer alumni. Um, you know, they when, uh, when a head coach that was formerly a defensive coordinator, you know, they, they get dubbed that defensive mindset coach. And when they struggle or they have issues, they go, oh, it's because he's a defensive-minded coach, defensive-minded coach. Is that a lazy argument? You have to know both sides of the ball to be a head coach in the NFL, right? There's 32 jobs, and that's anyone there, they know football. Is there really any merit to that argument? Like, oh, he just doesn't know enough about offense? Or is that because the coach didn't hire the, a good enough staff around him? So that's a great question, right? And so from the outside looking in, like it, it's a it's a lazy argument just because you're just putting a, a false tag on. Like for instance, like Brandon Staley in the grand scheme of things, like Brandon Staley is like G Dub. So he's college. He's a college quarterback, and he started out as an offensive coach, right? And transitioned to defense and just never went back, right? And so knows offense probably as much or more than he knows defense. Um, and so like that doesn't even fit the bill with with that one. Um, but I do, I think sometimes as well too, you get, I think what I've found is that what I've found more often is this, the, the role of a head coach in all the things that he has to do and be efficient and proficient at is very different, um, from that of a, of a coordinator or a position coach or whatever. Right. And so, um, how, how do you know? And if you don't have it right in your interview process, maybe the owner doesn't know himself or the GM doesn't know himself. But how do you know that this guy knows everything he needs to know about culture building about and then get into the finite issues of like uh, roster management, time management on on game day, all of the little decision theories and stuff that has to go in there. Right. That's different from what his job was previously as, a, as an offense or defensive play caller. And then I think the other thing that you run into, I've just watched over time is you don't really see this happen in other industries, right? Like where you have this multi-billion dollar industry where you go hire this person and then like, there's no HR or anything like that, right? Like that person's just gonna go have free license to go hire everybody. And so this person has maybe been a defensive coordinator or an offensive coordinator in getting to be a head coach. And I've seen many of them, like they don't even know enough, in my opinion, about their own side of the ball. Like they're a defensive coordinator, but they were a DB coach, and they really don't know like what's going on with the defensive line play, especially the offensive line play. And now they're going to go hire an offensive line coach, a quarterback coach, a defensive line coach. And so what they'll do usually is default to cronyism, like their friends and or like who they know, 
right? Like the people that they've worked with before that they've liked, right? That's such a small pool. And so I think that's where you see like problems happen more often, not not like being an offensive guy or defensive guy, but not like having all of the knowledge that that you need to to do and hiring the wrong people, delegating to the wrong people or not understanding all those decisions. I totally agree with what Blake says and is telling me right now he was paying attention a hell of a lot more than I thought he was throughout (laughs) all his life. And uh, and growing growing up on in in the at home and on the staffs and everything. Here's the one thing: the players understand that too. The players see what you know and don't know, and the ability to manage the clock. You know, another thing here, and and I haven't come out and said it. Do you think that I didn't also manage the offense when I was the head coach here at Cleveland? You don't think I didn't manage the special teams? I was special teams coordinator too. I was an offensive coordinator too. Played quarterback and. And do you not think I was managing all of that? You know, how did how did we go from, you know, Baker Mayfield having at eight games leading the league in the number of sacks that he had taken at 38 sacks and 41 hits on a quarterback? And then in the next eight games, he gets sacked twice and only seven hits on a quarterback. Why? Huh. There must be somebody that actually knows a little bit about playing quarterback and also about also understanding about what you do schematically to make sure that happens. And that those are the things that I still see as shortcomings. And when I watch and I watch every NFL game and I don't hold anything back when I'm here at his house, cause I don't have to worry about the cuss words. Okay. <laughs> is that it pisses me off to see how little some of these, new head coaches, young head coaches, and young coordinators don't know about the game. And the number one thing that pisses me off more than anything is the wasting of timeouts. <laughs> and I can tell yes. you which head coach, I can tell you which coordinator that's going to have the most timeouts wasted and the most delay of games on just calling the damn play. It's unbelievable to me. And then when I'm on the other sideline coaching against them, I hold that piece of paper, that laminated copy up in front of my mouth so you can't read my lips on what I'm telling the linebackers and telling everybody. But I'm also laughing because I'm watching the sideline, watching them try to get organized even to get a damn play in. Well, okay? I, I, can, I can tell you this because I've seen, I've seen y'all's, uh, y'all's in-game rants and it would probably – we should definitely have a rant off at some at some point in time uh, on uh, on game day on, on on what's going on sometimes with us I, I'm the same way like we sit there and have the rant off on like there's nothing worse than the timeout because the play is about to run out so you as a play caller like didn't get couldn't make a decision in enough time couldn't get the play call in enough time and then you want to take a timeout and you want to take that five yard penalty and like I look there and I'm like you just made a crappy decision. Like the previous couple of play calls that you made were crappy and like the hubris that you got to be like to say like, no, let's waste this really valuable timeout because this next play call that I make is going to be amazing and awesome. And like, I watched that so much of the time and like the end of the play call coming out of that timeout will be like a, a two yard game run or an incomplete pass. And I'm like, could we, could we like just take the five yard penalty? Like in, in that situation, like take the five yard penalty. They thought I was a nutbag here. <laughs> In the last eight, last eight games of the year, in practice, I put a play clock up. In practice, I made the offense go over on the sideline like the defense does everywhere I've done for 40 years. And we practice substitutions, play calls, everything, down and distance things, all this kind of stuff. And we are on the sideline so that when all of a sudden, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday practice, you've had 120-some reps of getting plays on and off the field instead of standing behind the offense like offensive coaches do, stand back there like they're watching shit when they're not paying attention. They're being stupid, okay, on trying to get the play call in. And I will tell you this right now, I shouldn't. I don't want to uh, break the, the Browns uh, thing, is that the, the slowest play caller in the National Football League they're playing this week. Wait, the, we'll take it. Oh, that the the Rams are the slowest. Hell yeah, they suck. The Rams, yeah, the Rams head coach. Um, this is uh kind of on the same topic. I don't want to dive into the Stefanski. Should he be calling plays or not be calling plays? I don't think he should be, and I have this belief. I don't know if there's any validity to it, but head coaches, plenty of them, do call 
plays and nobody bats a thousand. Is there any validity to the thought that a head coach shouldn't call plays because if they get one very wrong, the team could start doubting them? Well, coach, another thing too, everyone says you shouldn't, the head coach should be the CEO of the sidelines. If he's in the, the Denny's menu, He's not seeing what's going on with the defense and special teams and everything else. He should be monitoring everything. He can still overrule anything in the headset. But what is the thinking there? And is that, again, just a lazy, non-football knowledge argument? All right. You want me to be honest? Yes. 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 Okay. Here's the deal. When I took over, everything was happening so fast, I did it. I did the head coach and the coordinator, but can't be the quality good head coach that I needed to be to do both. And that's when Blake became – the defensive play caller, I hear everything. I can override. I can talk. I can suggest. We talk about the play. But I, as the head coach, have to manage every aspect of what the offense and the special teams doing and field position charts and and uh, analytic charts on fourth downs and all that type of stuff. My personal belief is be the CEO of the sideline and make sure you hire coordinators that you are a part of with them, okay? You, excuse me, you can be a part with them, but you can't do it all at the highest profession in the world, in the National Football League. You can't stay on top of everything by yourself. Coach, and- are there people up in the, the booth that are strictly looking at analytics of every play? When it comes to fourth and three on whatever yard line you're at, they'll be like, well, no, you shouldn't go for it. Because people, there's always rumors like, oh, Kev's got so many analytics people in his ear that the analytics overrules just the football guy knowledge sometimes. All right, I'll tell you again, and uh, we, we started it here. We started it here, and no one else even had a clue about what we were doing. And, again, I helped bring analytics to the National Football League before, and I think uh, De Podesta is outstanding before he went to Moneyball. All right, now, Blake is an unbelievable person in the analytic department everything, too. I had, and we put a person up in the box. It had never been done before here, and he was outstanding. Blake and him and me and all of us worked hard, and we developed, a. and Blake invented this situation, a field position chart and an analytic chart that we knew every single time before you started the drive, at what point in time, what the score was, what time was, and everything, okay, where we were going to be doing the fourth down conversions and all that kind of stuff. On two, on Friday afternoon at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I had a meeting as the head coach with the offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, special teams coordinator, and the analytic expert, okay, and we went over, okay, and we had a game plan going into the game of when we were going to be doing the fourth downs, when we were going to be going for two, when we were going to be doing all this type of stuff. And then it changes, and you have to be ready for it during the game as things develop, okay? And we went for it on fourth down more than anybody in those last eight weeks, and I think we were, what, 20 for 21 in conversions. Yeah. And I think and Blake has this too. I think I think the the main issue, and I mean, you kind of t- touched on it, right, is like Somebody, if you want to do it properly, first of all, like on game day game management, like somebody being in your ear, that's somebody that's just supposed to like when you're doing everything else, like just be another person to help like remind you of, hey, remember, this is our plan here. Remember, this is this year, right? Remember, this is this year. And and you really shouldn't even need that. It should be so planned out ahead of time um, and everything that, that you already know it. Like you, I believe in the, those analytics, those decisions, right? It's just game theory. Like those need to be as ingrained in you and your protocol and your mindset as like calling of your plays and your, your, your schemes and whatnot. Um, but a big thing that we did a big, sorry to interrupt you real quick. You're referring to the, the binary decision of go for it. Don't, or pun it. Yeah, go for two or take the yeah, what, and what play we're gonna run and all of the and how we're gonna do it and all those those type of things like you should like that 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 should be like breathing right like it should be the same way the coaches can make a play call on first down like this um, you know and whatnot on the first play of the game or something like that almost like scripted it should be it should be that same model like it shouldn't be this oh all of a sudden this situation came up 
like, hey, this is what the numbers say we should do here. You know, go for it. And like we should know that at the start of the drive, we should know that at first down, like not on fourth down. Um, and so that's kind of how we built it and did it. And then like it's also got to be properly so like it's got to be properly socialized. And that's something like that. That's the kind of argument that I kind of always had. And we kind of put it into fruition, as GW talked about right there, which is it's got to be practiced, like built into the actual practice it into practices you get with, with your coordinators, your meetings, like these are the decisions we're going to make. Hey, we're going to have a period this week on this. Like we would go around and as well to like see other things that had happened like in the league on these de- decisions that we hadn't even come across yet. All right. Or our situations and like put that situation into our practice. Like what is, and have that thought experiment, like coordinators go solve this problem. Like what are you, what's your, so what's your solution going to be when this thing comes about? And then we practice it. And then you go back and watch the film of it and all that type of stuff. And like all of those things, those emotions and whatnot, like we just had handled like Monday through Sunday so that when they came up, they were like this, but also it allowed us like we wanted, it allowed us to at times call, call plays differently on second and third down, knowing we had that like ace in the hole. Right. And we would, we, we avoided fourth down a ton because we called some different plays on second and third down that maybe we wouldn't have called if because we were treating third down like a second down, if that makes sense, like and, and whatnot. And all of a sudden run up, you know, some sort of reverse or screen or something with Jarvis Landry that they're not expecting on third down. Well, it's like because we're not playing it like third down, we're playing it like second down, like we're ahead of the thing. Like you need that's that that's when you're really operating, in my my opinion, um, and not when it's just like these one off type like air traffic controller discussions. And the biggest thing to simplify this right now, if of all the things we just talked about, when the drive started with an offensive uh, uh, possession, I told Freddie at that particular time, when the ball gets to this area of the field, this is where we're going for it on fourth and two, fourth and four, fourth and three. And then when we were approaching that part of the field, on first down of that area of the field, I told him, get it to fourth and two, we're going for it. And so it changes the play calls and how you go about. And it also, just like Blake said, the players have practiced this. They know what they're doing. It's not going to be a shock when all of a sudden we're going to be doing it because Baker would tell them in the huddle, hey, we're going for it when we get here. Three plays before we ever got there but not very many people were as organized and even ownership, general manager, everybody. I didn't tell anybody that shit when I was here. They didn't need to know it because it was too much for them to understand. That's very refreshing to hear because the, the general uh, consensus on Twitter and, you know, the, uh, the armchair quarterbacks in Cleveland is that Stefanski has analytics in his ear, overriding things that he wants to do. Well, side note, Blake, uh, invent a, whole new analytics system and invent a new position in the press box. I mean, that's the most Princeton thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah, so if you're still going to complain about analytics, you go after Blake. Um, but well, hey, hey, to be fair, the Princeton guy's not there anymore. We got Penn and Harvard, and they're like the safety schools in the Ivy League. So maybe that's Ooh. why they can't get it quite figured out. Yeah, Stefanski's <laughs> a Penn and, and Andrew's Harvard. So, yeah. Hey, well, I, I just – Stefanski, Stefanski and, uh, and, and Andrew and I all played against each other. We were in, in, in college. And Andrew's twin brother – he's got an identical twin brother – played with me at Princeton. Um, who just left Goldman Sachs to go do the same thing that Depot's doing, but for the the Eagles? Um, uh, very so he's poor. Yeah. yeah, he's not doing well. He's broke. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, Kevin said, "Oh, it makes me feel better because what you guys just described was when you guys were with the organization as far as uh, how to implement the analytics." Do you have any ins- like Stefanski? Could be. Is it the same system? Are they? I don't think so. Uh, a whole new world. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it's. Yeah, it's not. I don't. I don't. I don't think it's as integrated. Um, um, I, and I don't think it's not our guy. Um, you know, talking, talking up in the in the booth. You know, um, anymore. And given that, but again, it's just like I think a lot of times it comes down to again, like I just talked about. It's the it's the integration of it and who's driving it all day long. Like the analytics is just the insight. The analytics, like this, all the stuff that like. Depot or them, they say it's like it's quantified. Like it's not, I can't argue it. 
Like it's math. Like it's 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 yeah. quantifiable, right? It's like now, how do you choose to do it or not do it? How do you implement it or not implement it? Um, part of it, like you, you, it's like the gambler's fallacy where you really get in trouble is like worrying about like bad outcomes that are nothing's a hundred percent. Like, hey, this is going to be our decision on you know whatnot. Like, and we're going to do this every time we get this decision. It's not like, oh, the first time we go for for a two point conversion or fourth down, we don't get it, and now we get more of those opportunities and we don't do them because we're afraid of like what ESPN is going to say or the fans are going to say or this or that. Like that's when you start messing with the math. Like the math doesn't add up at that point in time. You got to have your strategy, stick to it, but then you got to like you got to have the ability to like adapt and improvise. The game changes, right? Like the game changes constantly. You got to have to understand that as the head coach and be able to do that. Here's the next thing. The next thing about it is this. How do you go about preparing and coaching the defense when all of a sudden the offense has failed on one of those high-risk things? So we have what we call a philosophy in our book. It's called sudden change. All of a sudden, we didn't get the fourth down. All of a sudden, we're playing behind a ton of turnovers. But let's say we didn't do the analytic turnover. We didn't do the analytic fourth down correctly then you have to go through a process that all of a sudden the defensive guys aren't going out there, poor little old me, pissed off at their teammates. All of a sudden we have to go out here and we got to do it. Hey, here's the deal. I see you flinch. I see you complain about anything. We are looking at the other teams in the eyes because they think they have a momentum change and we're saying, uh oh, maybe it's the name of some show. Come get some. That's come true. on, come That's on, come on, get some, and now get ready to play because we're going to stop you right now as a team. But that's literally what we did, right? That's what I'm talking about, like socializing. It's beyond like we don't play this game in a vacuum. It's not Madden, right? Like there's real human emotion, psychology in it. So same thing. Like that's what we would do. Like if we didn't get it on that fourth down or whatever, like it was just like any other turnover, right, that our offense did. And so everybody would – all the whole defense would have to huddle on me. I'd be trying to see what the other team was going to like deploy – but they'd all huddle on me. I'd be telling them, hey, this is what personnel is going out on the field right there. But then we would literally get all like rah-rah, like energized up, break it with a, hey, come get some bitch, right? And then like down the line, it'd be like, hey, Jabril, you know, and those guys, you know, uh, Kirko, they'd be like leading leading that 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 thing as well too, like all around me. And like our whole thing was like, we're going to be sprint, sprint out there. We're going to beat the offense onto the field. We're all going to be standing over the ball when they get out there. And there's like, oh, you guys think you have the momentum come and like, we're going to be staring him in the eyes by the time they jog out on the field. They, they think they've got the momentum and they're going to look us in the eyes and say, oh, come get some bitch. Like it's on. Like that's how we handle all of the socialization and the psychology, you know, beyond it as well, as well too, to him. You know, because you don't think sometimes when, Oh, this is the right decision to be made. And like, Oh, people aren't prepared for it. People uh, aren't on board with it. And then that like derails stuff. And I have a PhD in body language and I study every single one. And if one of their body languages and we go out and take the field, isn't what I will do. I'm in the headset to Blake. And I say, get him off. Get him out. Get him out. Okay. And all of a sudden, I'll put somebody else out there because we are going to look at another grown man in the eyes and say, come get some. It's about the attitude that we're going to play with before the technique ever gets into it. Schwartz might have that trait, but there's no oh, yeah. way to he, he has that yeah, trait. He does. He's been with it. There's no doubt about it. I'm so proud of him. Right well, now, and, he's the assistant coach of the year in the yeah, league. Just, that, that, that's Schwartz, yeah. Schwartz penalizes players if they don't celebrate enough. Like, a, a, you know, it's awesome. Well, this is – I don't know if this is as big of an indictment on Stefanski. And I don't want Stefanski – Remember, we're not editing this episode. Yeah, we're not editing. So we're going on some long tangent. I want Stefanski to succeed. <laughs> but I think something that nobody talks about is, as Kevin mentioned, the defensive personnel has been relatively the same for the past couple of years, minus changes at the D-line, and they've had safeties come and go but relatively the same group of guys, same core group. They go from one of the worst defenses in the league for the past couple of years to apparently the best. And I'm like, is that Stefanski's fault? Because he had Joe Woods there for three years, and it's like, what are you paying attention to? Nobody else has the proximity to address what happened, what's going wrong. Is it uh, miss? Are the players not talented enough? Is the defensive coordinator not doing his job? Is it a combination of both? But they just kind of sat with it until they had to make a change. And then it's like, oh, just kidding. 
turns out we have the ability to be the best defense in the league, which not to take away from Schwartz, but last to worst, I feel like that's on Stefanski for what else are you missing? To be fair, like, they were like top half the second half of last year. But anyway, good. Hey, no, you said no, that, that, well. that was, two, that that was well. two years ago. They were top half. I'll let Blake answer this yeah. so I don't piss anybody <laughs> off. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, ultimately at the end of the day, if Falls on the head coach. And I will say this, like, I'm just going to be honest. Like Joe Woods was a successful, really successful defensive coordinator before here. And like you said before, I mean, they were the year before they were fifth, right? Mm-hmm. It was the, you know, Baker was injured the whole thing. Like the offense, you know, kind of, you know, nosedived the year before. Um, but I think to say it tactfully, like this is what I've said, right, about the um, – and this is not to like be derogatory – or anybody out there, but this is just it is what it is, right? Because there's a lot of strong single moms out there. But all I said when they were initially assembling things was just be be careful with having a staff like or a team full of mommies and like no daddies. And at some point in time, like somebody has to be able to say the buck stops here, draw a line in the sand, like not be overly delegating, right? And so there was a lot of there was just there was a lot of delegating, you know, going on, you know, previously on that that defense. You know, kind of. Hey, this 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 guy's the head coach of the DBs. This guy's the head coach of the D line. This guy's the. It's like no, you guys are position coaches, right? Like it, and I think that's what that's what Schwartz brings. That's what GW you know always brings everywhere he goes, which is like you know where the buck stops. It stops right here, and like you know where accountability lies, and like everything's going to be like aligned, and like we're not going to take you know handle excuses, you know whatever, and we're going to put you in the best situations. To succeed, and when things and when things aren't going right, like the bust at the end of the Jets game, right last year and whatnot, and like Denzel Ward, who's really smart and really talented, is trying to explain that and talk through that and whatnot. Like, uh, like the worst thing that you can do is just say, like, well, this is this is how we do it, or this is what we're doing, right? Like at the end of the day, like now you're not listening to them. Like it's almost like you're pointing the finger at them, and you're asking them to go. The, the player themselves like knows that's like it's not getting fixed like we're I don't feel comfortable we're going back out of here like it's not I, you know and, and so you have those things and like that's when the human psychology kind of thing takes hold like just naturally like you have those those culture issues right like with a with a g-dubs approach or a or a or a Schwartz approach like the clowny thing like in the press at the end of the year that's never going to happen. Never. Because, see, the FU contest is going to happen nose-to-nose, face-to-face, in the meeting room or on the practice field from the get-go. Like, from the get-go. That's going to happen 12 months ahead of time and whatnot. Like, you're not going to let these things – like, these things, those things just don't happen out of the blue, right? Like, they take time to fester and, like, build up to their whatever, and then and then they, they come out, right? And, like, Sean Payton, I think, said it the best, you know, the most, like, all the time. He's like, that locker room in the culture is like a garden. And you've got to water it every day and tend it, but then you also have to weed it. You also have to weed it. You got to cut out the the toxicity. You go, hey, when a, when a person's when a person's upset or becoming toxic or whatever or not feeling you know right or not feeling heard, you've either got you got to change that. You got to somehow find a way to affect that. Listen to that person, affect that, or you got to change the person, like you know, and whatnot. Well, but, not to I don't want to harp on Clowny. I felt like what he said. I felt kind of bad for him because he said it in the locker room in what he thought was behind closed doors and a reporter basically clickbaited it. And it's like, Oh, Clowney's trying to lead the, uh, lead the, uh, a Cooper or whatever. He's pissed off. He hates Cleveland well, he said it in the press conference too. He's like, they're trying to get miles in the hall of fame. And that's why they're doing all this yeah, he said it in the press conference. Mm-hmm. Too, yeah. press conference I'll yeah. delete that. Kevin, let's move on. Hey, the uh, other thing is real quick story. You know, another thing about him paying attention, Blake paying attention, He's been in all these rooms. When I talked to you earlier about how we're going to sit in a chair on the very first meeting, that's the first words out of my mouth. Before I, the words out of my mouth is, I'm standing up in front of the room and I take my tennis shoe and I'm dragging it across the carpet in a big, long, straight line, about 15, 20 feet long, and then I start talking. The next day, I come in and I drag my foot across and I'm talking about somebody, something else. The next day, the next day, and maybe four, five, six, seven days down the lines, all of a sudden, a veteran raises his hand. They says, what are you doing up there in front of the room dragging your foot? And I said, it took you seven days to figure this shit out. I'm drawing a line in the sand. And you guys need to understand 
Okay, you cross over this line and stand. I will not even hesitate on busting your ass. Do you understand that? This is where it stops right here with me. It doesn't go past me. And when it does, I hope you have enough in the bank to go do what you want. Anyway. See, so you're, 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 misremembering actually turned out to be a hell of a it helped me i got we i know we're keeping you guys way post time so appreciate it very much one or two more um coach you uh just you know speaking of stefanski and the browns here um let's say hypothetically uh you know you sign a 230 million dollar franchise quarterback for the first time um and then of course the year after now you're about to start your fourth uh, quarterback of the season. His name might be Joe Flacco. What the hell do you do in the week or two you have to get this guy ready for an offense who's ready, who only knows another style of quarterback? I guess what I'm asking, for lack of better words, is what the hell do we expect come Sunday, and how do you get a Joe Flacco up to speed for this offense? I'm glad that's a very good question, and uh, I'm, I'm, I got a real strong opinion about this because I did talk with Andrew. Uh, I did talk with Alex Van Pelt, who is the quarterback or offensive coordinator. He played for me at the uh, Buffalo Bills. We have a great relationship. And uh, when all this was going down, you know, I uh, fired off and told them this is a very good hire. And the reason it's a good hire at this point in time of the year is this. Joe Flacco will know and be able to advise stuff that he totally comprehends and he knows he can do, not shit that you like to call, okay? It won't be, and Joe Flacco can also manage games. Here's the number one thing. Joe's gonna have to get the ball out of his hand quickly, okay? And he'll have to take calculated shots and he will understand that the shots that he takes down the field will be in seven and eight man protections, okay, instead of five and six man protections that we still don't have an understanding on how how fast the ball has to come out of our hands and to dictate doing that. And that's the number one thing that we did with Baker when I was here was that I got Baker to understand he's, he's doing okay with it, but he's starting still to hold the ball too long down there at Tampa is that you have to block the people that nobody else can block. Joe Flacco can do that. And Joe Flacco will be a great advisor, okay? And take a look at him on the field. Sometimes you'll see him. Joe's good enough. He was on the uh, on the, the Jets uh, team when I was with him there too. And we did a lot of talking behind the scenes on, on different types of things. Is that he's hearing the play come in the huddle and you'll see him shake his head no. He, he has no way to go back. And all of a sudden, if you're paying attention, Kevin, whoever's calling the play is, he don't like that. Okay, and that's having a say in what we're doing out there inside the white lines. Joe's the right kind of guy to do that. He's already captivated the team. The team respects him in that way. I, I really believe that you know he'll do a good job giving us a chance. He has to protect the ball this week, but giving us a chance to be, be better in certain aspects for the offense. And, and what I'd say on that as well, too, is like he's been in the – like the, the – the, the vocabulary in the league is really like it's like Spanish. There's not a lot of different languages, like way to go to go about kind of talking about, especially nowadays, um, talk about the offense and, and kind of how you put together the concepts and whatnot. Like you got to kind of like, like Spain Spanish and then like, all right, like Latin America, like Spanish. Right. And then like maybe okay. like and then maybe like a little bit of a little bit of French or dialects. Yeah, the dialects. And so it's like. It, it's going to be a, and he's learned so much. It's going to be a, it's a fast learning experience for him. One of the things that I, I hope, and I think is everybody, right, we all want to see them run more, blah, 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 all that type of stuff. Right. But there's a level of like what you can do that and be efficient as well too, when they know it's coming. Um, so what do you do in part? Like you, you need somebody out there, um, which would be nice, which can audible to the look like, Hey, we want to run the yes. ball right now, yes. but we need to come out yes. and see where they're at and like either check the direction or check the run. Like the most, the most complex audibleized run um, game out there in the, the modern NFL era has is, is been the Greg Roman one, wherever he was at, right? And so Flacco ran that. 
right? Flacco, yep. Flacco ran that. And Flacco wasn't, you know, before Lamar Jackson got out there running the ball all over the place, I mean, Flacco wasn't a run threat, right? So in order to account for that, he had to sit there and it's like, okay, we, we know, we would know going against them, they're running the ball, but he would be looking at our, our defense and be going to a menu of five, six, you know, potential run schemes, what was best for that. And so he gives them gives them that ability. And the other, the next thing I, I'd say I hope is um, that we see is, I mean, because he can still play ball. Like we, we were around him recently, but this the, the, the Browns offense, the, the talent that's out there right now, even minus Nick Chubb, is that is a more talented offense than probably Flacco's probably ever played with. Like that, the, the offensive talent is more talented than that Baltimore talent. It's a heck of a lot more talented than the offensive talent at the, uh, the jets were, yep. you know, when Flacco was there. Yep. And so like, I, I mean, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think of a player like, like Amari. He isn't, he hasn't played with a guy like Amari Cooper, right. In his prime, like Steve Smith at the end of his career, but not like that, like an offensive line across the board like that. Um, you know, in Joku, like I hope, I hope we see in Joku who's having a heck of a year go to even in another level because, like, because Flacco's always been a tight end friendly, you know, quarterback, right? And and Joku's a hell of an athlete and a hell of a player, and he throws Flacco throws a really catchable ball. So I need in Joku to go back in the old days, back in the late '80s and early '90s when I was with the Houston Oilers when they used to play. They used to spray all kinds of stuff on their gloves so they could catch the damn ball. Because he drops one more, I'm going to hit him in the nuts with the next one he drops. <laughs> hey, uh, I think Amari said this week something along the lines of in his press conference: watching Flacco drop back is like a work of art. Yep, mm-hmm. poetry in motion, no doubt. For that, yeah. thank you. Yes, thank you. That's um, yes, yep. I don't know how to end it any better than they just ended it. Yeah, you, you guys really it's like two encyclopedias. Thank you both for. Bringing me back. Granted, I, it's Friday, so I'm already almost full Browns. But now I'm at I'm at 150 percent Browns, baby. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Coach Greg Williams, Coach Blake Williams, watch their show. Come get some on Bally's, nine o'clock p.m. Eastern on Tuesdays, and follow them on Twitter and whatever social links we find and add into the link. Everything about them will be in the description of this uh, this episode. But Coach and Coach, I, truly an honor and a privilege to have you guys on. Uh, it's something we've wanted to do for a very long time. So. Thank you. I know you guys are busy as hell. Thanks for taking the time out of your day. Uh, we truly appreciate it. I know everyone listening does as well. Hey, appreciate you guys having us on, seriously. And, and it's one of my favorite places I've ever lived and coached. I love the fans. I love the dog pound. And uh, you may want to put some earplugs in wherever you're at if you hear me hollering and screaming from wherever I'm at this weekend if things aren't done right. Hopefully it's cheering. It's loud. Hopefully it's, it's cheering. cheering. Not, not, not MFing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's... That, yeah, we didn't ask. I should have asked earlier. You guys identify as Browns fans? <laughs> identify. They'll uh, cheer for him. How about that? Do you guys? Would you consider yourself Browns fans? I I think we 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 do. We are. Right? Like I've, I'm. I mean, I'm a I'm a Clevelander, right? I mean, I've started my 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 you know second life and my career here. You know, outside of football and everything here, and we're we're ingrained in the community. But we're still like we're still when you do this as a a life. Right. Like your fans, you become fans of people. Right. Like the people that you know and love and whatnot. And there just has, so happens to be a ton of them at the at the Browns. Right. Like Browns. some of our players that, that we coached. Um, White, like uh, I, I love I love me. Wyatt Teller, White and Wyatt Teller and my brother played together. So I've known Wyatt since he was like 18 years old. They played together. Wyatt's a friend of the show. We're good friends. With Wyatt's him been on the show a lot. We're good friends with him. He's and Carly. Stud. I mean, Jim Schwartz, Alex Van Pelt. Right. Like Jason Tarver. So many of these coaches the front office people. There like, are unbelievable you know, amount of so. really, really top quality expert and good people in that front office that I love. I still love. So we just, there's still so, there's so many connections that, you know, the people in the, the organization that you're a fan of theirs as well too. But no, we're definitely f- huge fans of Cleveland and, and Northeast Ohio. So we consider ourselves Browns fans. Yeah. Browns confirmed. You can't, you can't end any better than that. Coaches, thank you very much again. Truly, truly appreciate it. For Coach Williams, for Coach Williams, for Raleigh, for myself, thank you for listening to Dogs War Podcast, and good night, Cleveland. It was 1950 in the cold and rain When my father took me to my very first game Said the Browns are gonna show you how the game is played Here we go again